this morning we turn our hearts to God's Word, and we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, trying to get through this rather lengthy chapter dealing with the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. And uh, we've been looking at a lot of different things, um, and here we come to a text beginning in verse 35, which we'll uh, read in a moment, down to verse 49. But at the very beginning of this text, Paul asks the question, he says, but some will ask, how are the dead raised, and what kind of body do they come in? That is a very common question. People want to know, all right? Uh, When you die, what happens? Well, the Bible says very clearly that to be absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. But your body's still in the grave, or burned up, or whatever you did with it. So um, they had a lot of issues going on in the Corinthian church, as we have found out. And uh, just to remind you, in the the very um, beginning of this chapter, Paul had to revisit the gospel. He had to revisit the the basics of the gospel. They they received the gospel. We talked about that. But um, they had a hard time understanding not Christ's resurrection. They believed that, because that's an essential part of the gospel, right? But... What was interesting, they had a hard time understanding that their body would be raised from the dead. They couldn't, they couldn't grap, grapple with that in their own mind. Uh, it's interesting, when you watch TV, especially Christian TV, you see preachers on every channel, um, and usually at the end of their sermon, they will, quote, share the gospel. And I'm amazed at how many of these pastors share the gospel, and not once... During that gospel presentation, do they mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They don't mention it. They talk about how God loves you, which is true, that you're a sinner and, and Christ the Savior. And, you know, they just, they, they just want people to come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Just trust him. But they don't talk about the resurrection. And it's, it's funny because in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, when we went through Romans, we went over this. But in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul doesn't stutter. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. It doesn't say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God loves you, and you'll give your life to him, then you'll be saved. It doesn't say that. It says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's an essential part of the gospel. That's the bedrock, really, of all the preaching and the teaching in the New Testament as we know it. The bedrock, the, the fact of the matter is that, that our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who was risen from the dead. That he is alive. That we don't serve a dead God. That was a little weak. We don't serve a dead God. Amen. All right. All right. Just making sure you're still awake out there. I don't know. Maybe music put you to sleep. But after looking at the first 11 verses, we went on and we looked at verses 12 through 19 because he had to go over the gospel first. But in verses 12 to 19 of this chapter, he talked about why that was so important about the resurrection of Christ. Because if Christ had not risen from the dead, guess what? We are still in our sins. We have no forgiveness. We are still on our way to hell. 
Preaching, teaching is a waste of our time. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, our faith is futile. It means nothing. Let's just close the doors and go home and watch football. Who's playing this morning? All right, there you go. I'm from Pennsylvania. Good, good team, all right? Let's just go watch some football because if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, this, this thing we're doing here this morning means absolutely nothing. Nothing. There is either hope beyond the grave or there is no hope. There's no gray area. It's impossible for someone to be a born-again Christian and deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can't do it. Well, the third thing we looked at in our study here is verses 20 to 34, and this is last couple of weeks. Um, thanks so much, Ken, for filling in the last two weeks because I'm dealing with this kidney stone thing still going on, and I appreciate your prayers, and I'll pass the rest of it. They busted it up pretty good on Wednesday and uh, kind of felt it afterwards, by the way. I told the guy when he's doing the procedure, just turn that thing all the way up. And I want to get rid of this thing. Well, I can't really do that, sir. Go ahead. You know, No, we can't do it that way. But I appreciate Ken filling in for me. But the last time we were in 1 Corinthians, we were looking at verses 20 to 34. And we noticed the results of Christ's resurrection. What were the results of Christ's resurrection? Well, that brings us to verse 35, and what we're dealing with now is not the results of Christ's resurrection, but the reality of our own resurrection, future tense. We will be raised from the dead one day. Our bodies will be in and rejoined with our spirit, our soul. I want to have you stand in honor of God's word as I read the passage for us this morning. And I don't think we're going to get through the whole thing. So this would be a multi-part message. But uh, we want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. I thank you for standing in honor of God's word. Paul writes in verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for animals, another for humans, or one, another, uh, one kind for humans, <clears throat> another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Kind of nice four categories there. Verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 45. Thus it is written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Verse 49, just as we have been born, have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to comprehend and understand as we introduce today this text to our hearts and minds. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Paul opens up here with a question, and it's a very common question that people ask. It has to do with the afterlife. We, I entertain questions like this all the time. What are we going to look like? What's our new body going to be like? Are we going to be the same person? Are we going to be somebody different? Get this a lot. Will we know each other in heaven? Will we know each other in heaven? I mean, I think we're going to recognize each other in heaven, definitely. They recognized the Lord Jesus Christ after he was in his glorified state. And I think that we're going to be a lot smarter in heaven than we are now. So I don't think we'll have a problem recognizing each other in heaven. But before we begin to look at, into this text even, this way of introducing this section of Scripture, I want to spend a few minutes here review, reviewing for us what we call the human constitution. What, what makes us human? And you say, well, why is that important? Well, once again, when we begin to understand what the people of Paul's day understood from their pagan backgrounds and their culture and the confusion that was in this church at Corinth, it becomes very important. Um, there were two questions that were being raised by the Corinthians in Paul's day, in Paul's culture. How are the dead raised, number one? And secondly, what kind of body do they, will they have? Now, when you speak of the human constitution, what makes up a human? You can think of the body, the soul, the spirit. You can think of the heart, right? The mind, the conscience, all those things. Um, but the Bible basically teaches us that human beings possess a physical body, right? We have a physical body. And we also have a, a spiritual side to us. A soul, a spirit. A man was created and he was designed by God himself. He says that in Genesis 1, right? Let us make man in our image. Notice it's plural. He's talking about the Trinity there. After our likeness. And so in regard to how these aspects of the human nature connect with each other, how does the spiritual side connect to the physical side and all that, that was playing a big role in their understanding of a resurrected body. Because their pagan culture and their, their background and even the Greek culture of the day 
basically said, you know, this body that we have is just a, it's just a weight. It's a, it's a problem. It's not good. And you just, you know, got to rid the body, get rid of the body. And you had people even believing that you had to punish the body. And somehow they would gain some favor from doing such a thing. But we have to remember that God created our bodies. So our, our bodies are very special in God's eyes. He created them very uniquely. There's not two people here in this room that are identically the same. We're all different. Well, are we all going to look the same in heaven? That's a question people ask. No, I don't believe we will. I think we'll be distinguishable people. We'll have probably our same personalities without all the sinfulness. <laughs> without all the sinful characteristics. We'll be pure in every respect. But theology goes into this real deep, and we're just kind of introducing this and just giving you a real cursory view this morning. This is an overview of how the physical body and the spiritual nature of man connects. And, and there's different views on this. There's actually four different views. You can study it on your own if you want. But I just want to focus on the two main ones. The two main ones. Um, the other two kind of make up a, a view known, of, known as... Uh, Monism, which, which basically believes that the human person is one, one element. That's it. There's no physical, there's no spiritual, there's nothing. It's just one element. The Bible doesn't teach that, by the way. And we'll go into that. There's another view that says that man is a three-part being. A trichotomist is what, what they're theologically called, trichotomists. And you have a body, and then they take the spiritual side of man and they divide it up into two. You have a soul, which basically relates to to here on earth, and then you have a, a spirit that relates to God. And so they would say, well, a human being has a body, they have a soul, and a spirit, and they're all different. And then you have a third view, or the, the second primary view, you have those who are a trichotomist, and then you have dichotomists. And a dichotomist would say, you have a body and you have a spirit or slash soul. The distinction here is, is between the material, the physical, and the immaterial aspects of human nature. That's kind of straightforward. I mean, I think most of us would agree that we have a physical body, Right? I mean, we would have to agree to that. And most of us would agree that we have a soul. We have a spirit. We have something that lives within that physical body uh, that, that makes us who we are. And so it raises the question in people's minds, what's the difference between the soul and the spirit? Or is there a difference between the soul and the spirit? And without getting to a complete separate study on this issue... Um, let me just tell you, I don't believe there is any difference between the soul of man and the spirit of man. And I'll share with you why. I want to explain it to you. So I would hold to what is known as the dichotomous viewpoint. You have a, a physical side and you have a spiritual side. And you can't be dogmatic on this. If you want to say, no, I believe there's three, well, that's, that's fine. That's, it's not going to keep you out of heaven. Okay. Um, 
But I think most of us would agree that man is made up of two parts. You have a body, which is the material part, and you have the immaterial part, which whatever you want to call it, the spirit, the soul, cut it up, dice it up, however you want, it makes no difference. But most of us would agree that, yeah, there's, there's two parts to a human being. If you want to dice up the spiritual, immaterial part, and three, you know, that's fine. Or, and two, two different, the soul and the spirit, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But my, my reason for believing that there's just two, the body and the soul and the spirit, is it all starts back at creation. It all goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And so you ask yourself, well, what is the material part? You keep on saying the material part. That's the body, the physical part. The material part of our bodies is made out of a very uh, interesting substance that you don't like in your house. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. The Lord made our physical bodies out of what? The dust of the ground. It's a nice way of saying dirt. Okay, we're made of dirt. That's the material side of us. And that's why I say this is something that God created. This is why our bodies are important. It's important enough to God for you to have a body. He could have just made us spiritual beings without any physical body if he wanted to. It was important enough for you to subject your body to, the Bible says, holy patterns and holy practices. It's important enough for you to dedicate this physical body as a sacrifice, as on to the Lord. Romans, right, tells us that, Romans 12. Your body is really the partner to your soul. It's an expression of the immaterial part of who you are. Uh, Sometimes in the scripture, uh, the Greek word soma is used to speak of the physical body. That's the word in the Greek. Sometimes there's a term known as, uh, in the original language, sarx, S-A-R-X. And and that's used to refer to the fleshly body, the, the, the physical flesh and bones that make us up. But we wouldn't have any argument saying we do have a body. We are a body. We are flesh and bones and blood and muscle and, and sinew and tissue and all that. But even more than that, you're, you're more than just a physical body. You're way more than just a physical body. In fact, the body is just where you live. That's where the real you resides at. Someday, the Bible says that you will transcend this body to another body. (laughs) Eventually, all of us have a what? An appointment with death, pending the Lord's return. We're all going to die one day. There's going to come a day when we're going to breathe our last. And guess what? You're no longer going to occupy that body. You're no longer going to occupy that physical body, that tent that God gave you. Your spirit, the real you, is going to go into eternal life. Depending on where, that depends on your relationship with Christ on this side of glory. 
If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and you've turned to God and you believe that, hey, you know, Jesus lived on this earth for 30-some years. He lived a perfect life, your word says. And you know what? The Bible says that he went to the cross to die for my sins, which I know are many. And there's no way I can pay for my own sins. And I believe that this man died on a cross and that after three days, God miraculously raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. That's the kind of guy I want on my team. That's the kind of the person that I want to join with. I want to put my faith, my trust in somebody like that. I don't want to put my faith in a savior that I can go and say, oh yeah, his dead body's in the grave there. What good is that? So Christ is set apart. And when we put our faith and our trust in him, he, the Bible says, he saves us from our sin. He forgives us of our, all of our sin. He transforms us. We will transcend from this body one day to another body. Our glorified body. Benjamin Franklin on his gravestone wrote this. Here lies the body of Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book. Stripped of its lettering and gilding, it lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Capital A. I don't know if Benjamin Franklin was a believer or not, but if he was, that's what he's got to look forward to. See, the point is simple. Your body is a house for your soul. It's a mere tent where the real you resides, your soul, your spirit, whatever you want to call it. That's the material side, the body, the physical body. Where did it come from? It says, the Lord formed it out of the dust of the ground. And if you continue in that verse, it says, and breathe into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. What is that? That's the immaterial part. So God created your physical body, but guess what? There's really nothing there until he breathed life into it. That's where we get the spiritual side. That's where we get the soul, the spirit. He made man out of dirt and then he breathed into him that immaterial part. There's two parts in creation. He doesn't say the Lord formed the man out of the dust of the ground and then he breathed into him the the breath of life and then into him the spirit. No, it kind of combines the soul and the spirit together. There's only two aspects of man as created by God. The material, our physical body, and the immaterial, the breath of life, or the spiritual body, or the spiritual And from the beginning, God doesn't separate the spirit from the soul. So my question is, why should we? Now, in the Bible, there's a lot of places where the the words soul and spirit are used interchangeably. They're used interchangeably. One is in James chapter 2, verse 26. James chapter 2, verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead... So also faith apart from works is dead. There you have two parts. You have the body and the spirit. See, the body needs a spirit to be alive. 
That's what happens when someone dies. They give up their spirit. And their body is dead. There's no life to it. Now, there's some people that believe, (laughs) they say, well, the soul and the spirit. The spirit is when you get the Holy Spirit. That's what that's referring to. No, that's not what that's referring to. That's the worst possible view of all of them. I mean, can you imagine being two-thirds of a human until you get saved? That doesn't make any sense. As a human being, God created us. He created us whole in our being. He created us with a physical body and a soul and a spirit, a spiritual side. Now, there's other biblical passages that don't seem to present the the soul and the spirit as precisely the same thing on the surface. There's other passages that you can turn to to say, oh, see, here it's saying the spirit and the soul are different. And that's okay, because they're they're in the Bible. You You can't argue with that. And the person who would adhere to the trichotomous view that says, oh, no, man has a body, a soul, and a spirit. They would make a distinction between the spirit and the soul. They would say the spirit is what relates to God and the soul is what is down here on earth amongst ourselves. And the body is your body. Um, there are passages that hint at the separation here. Uh, one is, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, where Paul writes, Your whole body, soul, and spirit. But you have to remember... Um, just because there's different terms there, soul and spirit, it can be used to speak of the same thing. It's kind of like in English when we say, you know, man, that guy's got heart and soul, right? What are you saying? Boy, he's just really passionate about something. You're using two terms that are distinguishable, but they really apply to the same thing. Or you could, you could say, well, you know, it goes to the thoughts and intentions of, you know, whatever. Same thing. There can be different activities conducted within your immaterial part, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're two distinguished parts. Another verse that people bring up that believe in the trichotomous view is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And you know what it says. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And then what's it say? It penetrates even to dividing the what? Soul and the spirit. And they point to that verse and they go, there you go. It's saying there's a division between the soul and the spirit. Well, that's not really what it's saying. It's basically, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the deepest part of a man's soul, a man's spirit, deeply into man. He's just using those words to refer to the same thing. So I believe that man consists of a body and a immaterial part, a spiritual side, which we would designate as soul slash spirit, whatever you want to call it. Um, we can't prove any of these things. You know, this is something that God has created. This is something that's far above our pay grade. But it's important to understand this because you know, maybe the soul has a little different function than the spirit on occasion. But they're one. They're one. They're the total you. That's what makes you up. 
Um, You can't lose your spirit and still be you. You can't lose your soul and still be you. You know, I don't hear people walking around, oh, yeah, yeah, had a rough day there. My soul just did this. No. You wouldn't say something like that. That'd be silly. Or my spirit did this. No. You're just you. You're a body indwelt by the breath of life, which is a spirit, immaterial part. And this is perhaps an issue uh, that we're clearly unable to grasp completely with our finite minds, but we can kick it around and kind of, you know, have fun with it. But like I said, this isn't a, an issue of salvation here. But it's important because when it comes to the culture of Paul's time, we're going to find out that they had some misunderstanding as, as far as the constitution of a human, what, it made, what made up a human being. And so when it came to resurrecting a physical body, they just couldn't comprehend of that, ever. But what can be certain is that the human nature is comprised of a body, soul, slash spirit. Um, and I think that that's an important thing. And whether you believe the dichotomous view or the trichotomous view, we're still told to what? Offer our body as a living sacrifice. Okay? We're still called to thank God for saving our soul. 1 Peter 1.9. We're still called, John 4, to worship God in what? Spirit and truth. We're called to do that. And so this, this chapter, where we're at in verse 34, Paul begins to talk about the resurrection of believers. That's really the theme here. What's going to happen? The Bible promises that we will have a um, body that is redeemed. Not just the spirit, not just the soul, not just the inner person. But our body will go through a transformation. Romans 8.23 says that we are waiting. Remember, Paul says, I'm waiting for the redemption of our body. What's he saying? I can't wait till I, I, I get out of this body and get my new body. The glorified body. Paul made it clear that the spirit of man, without a, without a, a body, is, is naked. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, he says, For we know that in, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, what's he referring to? He's referring to his physical body, this tent that we live in. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Where's it at? It says eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, he says, for in this tent, in this body, we groan. Are you groaning? <laughs> Every morning I get up, I groan. Boy, it's, uh, here we go again, right? I mean, it's just life. You know, you're, you're getting older. You're feeling things you didn't feel before. Wow, this is, this is interesting. For in this body, in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Why? Because there's no more groaning. <laughs> there's no more groaning in heaven. We have a glorified body. He says, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. See, when you die, your soul just doesn't go off and, and, and never end up with your body again. That would be naked in Paul's words. No, it, it, one day it's going to be rejoined to your body. And we talked about the resurrection of the dead in previous studies. And you can go back on the app and online and, and look at those messages. But we talked about it. it's not just believers who are going to be resurrected. 
Unbelievers are going to be resurrected. Their bodies are going to be rejoined with their spirit. The only difference is when a believer who comes to Christ and dies and his physical body goes to the earth and his spirit, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, goes to be with the Lord. Well, one day, what, what does God do? He raises that body from the dead and he rejoins it with the soul in a glorified state, just like Christ had a glorified body. And we go to be with the Lord forevermore. The unbeliever says that his body will be raised to what? To judgment. He will have an eternal body too. But it will endure the wrath of God forever in hell. Because of his lack of trust in Christ while he was here on earth. So we, we groan. He says in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 5. For while we are still in this tent we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed but that we would be further clothed so that what is, listen, mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. This is God's plan who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? A guarantee of our future glorified state. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit that the believer possesses at the time of his conversion. When he comes to Christ, he deposits the Holy Spirit within our lives. And he says, you know what? That's a down payment. That's a deposit. So if you're sitting here this morning and saying, well, you know, what about, you know, do you think you can lose your salvation? Absolutely not. If you're truly converted, if you've truly come to Christ, if you've truly seen God transform you, And you know that you know that you're a believer in Christ? The Bible says there's no way. What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Can anything? No, Paul says. Nothing. Why? Because he's given us that spirit as a guarantee. It's a promise from God. And God doesn't lie, my friends. So God created man as a body and a soul. Slash spirit. And he's going to redeem the body, as well as the spirit. And we will all dwell with God forever in heaven in the resurrected state, if we know Christ. John eleven twenty one, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, remember, as, you know, her brother passed away. They called for Jesus and he got there late. <laughs> they thought. <laughs> Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, John 11. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, listen to her, very smart woman. She goes, oh, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, she believed in the resurrection. She knew. And Jesus said in verse 25, Listen, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's a promise to us, beloved. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I hope you do. See, Jesus promises the resurrection of our bodies here. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to the 
come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father prepares that pathway, unless he draws him. And then he says this, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus didn't say, well, maybe I'll raise him up. There's a possibility of a rest. No, he said, and I will raise him up on the last day. The promise of resurrection. See, the body is not to be discarded eternally. Some believe that, you know, you just die and that's it. It's the end of the deal. The body, as some believed in Paul's day, is not merely a prison for the soul or the spirit. We have to understand the Bible teaches that the body belongs to the very essence of man as created by God. That's why he created us this way. And even in this life for believers, the body is exalted. How is it exalted, you might ask? Well, it's exalted by being made the temple of what? Of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't say, oh, you're just a bunch of sinners, you know, there's no hope for you. Yeah, I don't care about your bodies either. No, he created our bodies. And when we're saved, what does he do? He gives us the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul makes it very clear. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who have put their faith or trust in Christ, whom you have from God. And then he says this, which is interesting, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, we we have too many churches today filled with too many people who believe they're their own. They're their own. They can do whatever they want. I don't have to yield to anybody. I know so-called professing Christians that say that. That is is diametrically opposed to what Paul just said. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. See, we we think that we we get into this theological issue sometimes, the free will and all this stuff, and we think, wow, you know, we're just free to do whatever we want. Well, the Bible describes us before we come to Christ as what? Huh? Slaves to sin. Does it not? It says we're slaves to sin. We can't help but sin in our unsafe state. It's just the thing we do. Uh, You know, the psalmist says, in iniquity I was brought forth. Sin isn't something you learn to do. Sin is something you do naturally. And I would even say, sin is not what we do. Sin is what we are. John Owen. Mortification of sin. You know, we've got to arrange our minds to what the Bible teaches. Because we think in our minds that somehow if we just do A, B, and C and we do it right, well then, you know, we don't have to deal with sin anymore. No. As long as we're in this fleshly body, as long as we're in this physical state, guess what? You're going to have to deal with sin. I don't care how spiritual you are. doesn't matter. You look at the Apostle Paul, he had to deal with sin. If you're in a physical body, you're going to deal with sin. But what Paul says here is glorify God in your body. 
do the right thing with it. Because you're not your own. You were bought with a price. God is not going to desert our body at the grave. The Bible says that he will raise it up from the dead. Incredible. John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, guess who's in the tombs? Dead people. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Listen to this. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And like I said before, it's not just believers that get the resurrection. (laughs) Unbelievers are going to be raised from the dead as well. Their eternal state will be different, clearly. But it's a very important doctrine, the resurrection of the believer's body to go with his glorified spirit. It's really a, a cardinal Christian truth. But here in the Corinth church, it was running into opposition. They were having a hard time comprehending this. And that's why Paul begins to write this scripture. Even if you look back at verse 12, you see this. He says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which they understood that because they heard the gospel, He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? (laughs) If you're saying you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but you don't believe that you can be raised from the dead and there is no resurrection of a dead body, it doesn't make any sense. The Apostle Paul writes this chapter to deal with that very question. And this was basically taught by the Greek philosophers of Paul's day. The notion of of the Greek philosophy was that the spirit is what? Good and all matter is evil. That's what they believed. So the soul side of you, that's the good part of you, but the physical body, that's bad. That's evil. And you know what? As a matter of fact, the sooner you get rid of all that body, all that matter, the sooner you get rid of your body, the better off you're going to be. That's what they believed. And you ask them, what, what do they believe happens to the body? The body just goes into the grave, and it decays. And the spirit goes back to wherever it came from. That's what the philosophers of Paul's day taught. They believed that the soul went up, and it was just kind of lost in some universal deity somewhere. It's absorbed. It loses its individuality. There is no you after you die. That's what they believed. There is no resurrection. That's what they taught. And so Paul had to take time to reaffirm, first of all, that Christ did raise from the dead, that that's a fact, and they agreed with that. But then when he got to the personal part, well, you're going to be raised from the dead too. They just, I can't understand that. And so he's confirming the bodily resurrection of believers here. And so he, he opens up here with some foolish questions, verse 35 to 36. That was all introduction, by the way. That's why I said, I don't know, we're, we're not going to get too far. We'll close it up here in a couple minutes. But, you know, the, we're kind of setting the table for you, okay? But we'll get through this, this first page of the outline at least. The foolish questions that were asked, look at what he says in verse 35. Finally, we get to our text. But someone will ask, that first word, but... So important. Little, little things like that in Scripture, 
give you a whole perspective of the context here. What's he saying? That word in the Greek is Allah. And one of the interesting things here in verse 39, he starts with that word but. And, and basically here, grammatically in the original language, it means a strong contrast to what was just being said. It can mean other things too, but here it means a strong contrast to what was just being said. Well, what was just being said in verses 29 to 34? We went over that. You know, if there's no resurrection coming, if you don't want to believe in the resurrection, then Paul's saying all this suffering that I've done, I've gone through all this suffering, and basically it's a waste of time. Paul's saying, why would I die daily to myself? Why would I give myself to to have to overcome these beasts and all this other stuff that he's talking about? What are the advantages of being attacked if I have no hope and no faith and no resurrection? Then in verse 35, he says, but in contrast to that, in complete contrast to that, we got a couple questions here, and he says they're kind of foolish. That's kind of surprising. He's rather blunt with his readers here. He points out three things about the foolishness of these questions. First of all, he says the thinking behind these questions contrasts with the seriousness of faith. It's interesting to me that we are so easily entertained by the question about what kind of body we will have, how it will happen, what it will look like. It's like we're just focused on the the shiny object. It's almost like a smokescreen, you could say, avoiding the real issue of believing that Jesus arose from the dead. We get so wrapped up in the methodology of the details of our resurrection instead of looking at the fact that it's going to happen. That it demands our faith in the Lord. And so Paul says, hey, some of you are going to ask these questions. I know it. You foolish people. That has nothing to do with anything. That doesn't change the fact. So we have the thinking behind these questions contrasts the seriousness of our faith. And then secondly, the teaching of that culture had great difficulty with a simple faith in what God said. They couldn't do that. They couldn't, their pagan backgrounds, all the philosophies and stuff that they were entertaining in their minds, they couldn't have just a simple faith in the Lord. It made it very hard for them to trust and to have that simple faith in what God says. You know, when you think about it, the teaching of that culture that was going on back then is really the same culture we're dealing with today. Exactly. It was very narcissistic it was very polytheistic you drive around you see you know all these faith bumper stickers you know what is the unity thing (laughs) makes everybody look good nobody's bad no no oh you want to believe in that god okay that's great right yeah we have tolerance for everybody incredible tolerance for all these world religions except the one true one well, we're not going to tolerate that. You can't say Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father. That's hate speech almost. You, you, how dare you?
We want to tolerate everything. And at the same time, we want to glorify the human body. I mean, we're obsessed with how we look, how we might appear. Now, I mean, you know, we should be good testimony. I mean, I'm not saying we should walk around with tattered rags and whatever. But at the same time, we have to keep things in perspective. We have a, an overriding obsession with how we look and how we appear. I mean, just watch TV for a half hour and you see 50 different diet commercials. You know, oh, this will make you look this way and beach bodies and all this. Who cares? I mean, granted, we should take care of our bodies. Some of us do it well. Some of us don't. Okay, that's fine. But let's keep it in perspective for the long haul. It's not everything. And the way the Romans and the Greeks looked at man and human beings was, you know what, what they do? They looked at the outward appearance. That's all they looked at. They forgot that it's the Lord who what? He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. And I think what has happened in our technical, super technical culture, with so much of our wonderful technology is going on all around us all the time, that you know what we're doing? We're, we're ignoring the soul. We're ignoring the spirit. We're ignoring the heart of man. Because we're caught up with the shiny object of the outside. We're all into the external instead of the internal. What really matters. I mean, all you have to do is go visit some churches. There's so many churches today that are so into performance, into entertainment. They want to put on a show for their people. They want their people to come and see the show and be all excited about coming back. And and they're so focused on the external, they're, they're forgetting what really matters is the internal. And our relationship with God. So they're willing to compromise in ways that are mind-boggling. See, in the Roman Greek culture, you need to know that they were very concerned with their physical bodies. The way they looked. Their appearance. And on the other side of things, they were very hostile toward Christians. And their teaching that they were going to get a new body. They didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that after the resurrection, the Christians were going to have a new body. They, they, they just went in dissonance. They couldn't understand that. And they were very hostile to it. They didn't believe it. Even in Acts chapter 17, when Paul tried to preach the gospel to them about the resurrection of Jesus. You can read it on your own. We're not going to take time. They thought he was just naming a new God. They were so focused on the external The resurrection in the Greek, Anastasios, they just thought, you know what? Oh, here's a new God. The God Anastasios. Let's just worship him. And Paul's like, no, you're missing the point. That culture was so tolerant of everything and not wanting to be specific that they were hostile when Christians were specific. And when Christianity came along with a strong message of the resurrection, what did they do? They took these Christians, and what did they do to their bodies? What does it say they did? They burned them. Why did they burn them? We'll show you. 
You think this body's going to be resurrected? We're going to burn you at the stake till there's nothing left but ashes. Ha ha. And they mocked it. They mocked the hope of the, of the resurrection. Sometimes people ask them, well, is it wrong to cremate your loved one? Or should they be buried? What's the Christian thing? The Bible doesn't speak to that. I, th- I think traditionally, most Christians were buried or they were placed in a tomb. But that's tradition. I don't think it matters, in all honesty. A lot of people say it's cheaper to go the cremation rate route. Okay, whatever. But if you check that route out, it's, it's kind of up there with actually you know, doing the other thing as well, being buried. I mean, it doesn't make any difference, frankly. I mean, think of somebody who's blown up in an airplane. What happens to their body at the resurrection? I mean, God created our body. You don't think he can put it back together in a resurrected state? Of course he can. So that's not really a, a biblical question to be asked. So whatever you do when you die, that's, that's your business. I mean, if you've ever been in a funeral home, if you've ever gone to a funeral or had to prepare a funeral for somebody and you go to the home and you've got to go through all the things that they do there. I spent a lot of time in funeral homes and sometimes attending funerals of loved ones and sometimes officiating funerals for others. And when you walk into one of those places, it's, it's you know, I look around, it's like, wow, okay. It's like sterile. I mean, it even smells sterile. They have this elevator music playing real lightly. Guy comes out in his suit. I I help you. You It's very calm. I mean, I remember one time we were in the lobby of the funeral home, and I I guess sometimes my voice can get a little loud. Got a little loud. My wife wife turned me, shh. Who are we going to wake up? I mean, come on. Really? I mean, I get it. It's a place of reverence and you know that kind of thing. But as a believer, as a believer, I remember growing up, I actually had thoughts of becoming a funeral director. You know, my parents died when I was young. I had a brother die when I was young. I spent a lot of time in funeral homes. I thought, this is kind of cool. I'd like to do this. Nice house. And you have people come and you comfort them. And then I learned that, well, to do that, you know, part of the role is being a mortician. What a mortician? Well, they, you know, do the embalming. Of the, eh, no, thanks. I just want to do the funeral director. I want to drive the limo kind of thing. You know, I want to do that. And I remember after I became a Christian, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be, have a funeral home that's geared around what Christians believe? You walk in and there's bright colors and it's kind of like a party atmosphere and there's praise music blaring and, you know, you're like, whoa, yeah, Charlie went to be with the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's have a party. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches us about death. It's not something to be feared. Absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. I mean, I don't get, I don't get it paying multiple thousands of dollars to put a dead body in a perfectly new casket and then take it and put it in the dirt. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, that's fine if you do it. Uh, whatever. 
But we, we got to overcome the idea that somehow that's Charlie. <laughs> that's not Charlie. That's not. That's just Charlie's tent. That's Charlie's dead body. Charlie's feet trusted Christ. He's with the Lord. We have to align our thoughts to what is biblical. I mean, they try so hard to make the dead person look so nice, put makeup on their face. They never look like they, you know, I'm sorry, but they don't ever look, you know, and people, oh, don't they look nice? I just want to go, they look dead. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but they're dead. You can put on as much makeup as you want. They're not going to look living. Not going to happen. Sometimes you hear things, you know, well, you know, good old Charlie, you know, he's up there in heaven looking down on us. And You really think when you go to heaven, you're going to want to look back at this place? I don't think so. I mean, you're going to be ushered into the presence of your Lord and Savior with all the glories that await you there in heaven. I don't think you're going to even take a second to peer over and go, what's going on back there on earth? I'm so concerned. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. And then he says this, in your presence, when we get to heaven, there is what? Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Have you ever been so enjoying something? Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's time at the beach, whatever. And someone comes up and tries to talk to you or something. You're just like... (laughs) You're just in the moment, right? You're just enjoying it so much. You don't want any distractions. In heaven, there will be no distractions. We won't be peering back here at earth. We have to reorient our mind to overcome the teaching of even our own culture. Away from what God has said. I mean, I don't want to die. But you know what? After I'm dead, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. I mean, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, the last thing here quickly as we close, we're not just the thinking of how these things contrast with the seriousness of faith, but the teaching of the culture made it difficult for them to have simple faith in what God said. But the last thing here is the traditions of Judaism were a problem. Okay, did you know that in the Jewish faith, especially back then, there were many who believed that when you died and your body went into the grave, if you were blind or lame or dumb, whatever, that you're going to be raised in the exact same condition. <laughs> That's what they believed. There's no change. It's just the same body coming out of the grave. And we, we hear that as Christians. We go, Why would they believe? That's just what they believed. I mean, no wonder the church, who was filled with both Jews and Gentiles, as we're told in the book of Acts, no wonder some of them would say, wait a minute, how are the dead raised? What's, what's the question there? Well, are they going to come back with all their problems and stuff, like some of these Jews believe? Or, you know, what kind of body are they going to have? Are we going to come back with all our physical disabilities? I mean, what kind of resurrection would that be to look forward to, Right? Well, in two weeks, we're going to go into the facts, the facts about our resurrected body.
And we'll begin in verse 36 and work our way down through that. But it's important to realize just three quick things about our resurrected body. Our, our relationship, its relationship to your present body makes you the same person. We're going to look at that. That's in verse 36. And we're going to look at its recreation, the glorified body. Its recreation makes you a different person. And then thirdly, its realities makes you even a greater person. So that's why we have hope. That's why we have faith that, wow, we look forward to the pattern of resurrection and we go, wow, this is going to be incredible. It's incredible. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, as we just introduced this this morning, I pray that this text would speak to our hearts, that it would build us up in our faith, that we would come to understand that one day we too will be, our dead bodies will be filled with life again, that we'll have a resurrected body, uh, one that's much better. And we'll see what the facts about those resurrected bodies will be in a couple of weeks. But Lord, we, we pray this morning, especially for those who are hearing this message via the internet or even here personally, Lord, if you have yet to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, if, you've trust, if you have yet to trust in his resurrection, in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, unfortunately, you're going to be one of those bodies that's, that's resurrected to judgment. Judgment for your sins. And the Bible says that... After you die, there's no hope. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you have questions in your heart as to whether your faith is valid or not. I pray that the Lord, as only the Lord can do, I, I can't look into your heart and tell you, but he can. I just pray that you have a sense of need of forgiveness. And you realize that Christ is the Savior who can forgive and will forgive when you cry out to him from a heart that's sorrowful over their sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work in the hearts of people here this morning. We pray as believers we would look forward to that day when we will be absent from the body, present with the Lord, but then also that our bodies will be rejoined with our spirit one day. We look forward to that. What an adventure that we have in front of us. And so, Father, we pray that you bless each one that's here this morning. Bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.